let's talk about uh, abortion. Uh, this, this has been at the heart of the evangelical politics through the moral majority since the 1970s. Um, we, of course, are all aware of the triumph of their cause culminating in the overturning of Roe v. Wade last summer, uh, leading to many states changing their abortion laws. Um, but you've written on the deeper legacy of abortion within the Christian movement. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Shane Claiborne. He is the founder of The Simple Way in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, an integral leader in Red Letter Christian Movement, and author of numerous books, including Red Letter Revolution, Jesus for President, and Irresistible Revolution. Shane, welcome back to the conversation. Yeah, good to be with you, Andy. Thanks for having me. A little bit in our world has changed since we had you on in, in 2019. Um when we last had you on, you had co-authored Beating Guns with Michael Martin. And uh, for those that might have missed this initiative, um, you're actually inviting people to submit their guns over for destruction, turning them into pieces of art and garden tools. Uh, what's the latest with this fascinating project? Yeah, well, you know, it's we're inspired by that prophetic vision that both Micah and Isaiah uh, share of beating swords into plows and spears into pruning hooks. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of swords in America, but we have more guns than people. So we started inviting folks that if they, you know, voluntarily wanted to donate guns, uh, we would decommission them and repurpose them, turn them into garden tools and art. So it's been over 10 years now, man, that we've been doing that. Um, and, uh, just hundreds and hundreds of firearms. Many of them have uh, really tragic stories behind them. Um, and we're centering the people who have been impacted by gun violence uh, as we do it. So it's it's a very holy, uh, holy work, you know, and we, we heat up the forge and we can recraft uh, a piece of metal that's been shaped to kill into a piece of metal that's crafted to cultivate life and making all kinds of stuff out of them these days we're learning to also uh 
uh, melt down the bullet casings and, you know, and the, the brass becomes sort of a, almost like a candle wax you can pour into molds. And uh, so we're, we're uh, doing that all the time. Got a new shop on the Kensington Avenue here on the north side of Philadelphia, where, you know, our gun deaths sadly are the highest that they've ever been in the history of Philadelphia. And that's, that's, you know, really true around the country. So it's a way of lamenting and grieving the lives lost, but also proclaiming that all things can be made new. Sometimes I show people a shovel made out of a gun, Andy, and I say, uh, this is what a gun looks like when it gets born again. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, like I said, it's a fascinating initiative in taking scripture and kind of putting it into the context of, of U.S. relationship with, with guns. And of course, we've, we continue to have these mass acts of violence by the hands of assault weapons. And so I imagine there's many ministers listening to this that might be thinking, this might be a great community project for our area, maybe a recent area that has been victim to a mass shooting. If people want to get involved, how do they get involved? Yeah, so there's there's all kinds of ways. And, and you're right, it, it is really just taken off. Um, so our website is rawtools.org and we get our name from flipping the word war around you know because that's kind of what we're doing flipping from violence to peace and turning guns into garden tools so rawtools.org and there's a, a you know a place to go if you want to donate a gun if you want to host an event we have a number of congregations that want to be trained and how to decommission guns so that they can do this work themselves. Um, and uh, so, so we have a whole network of safe surrender sites that we're building around the country. Uh, I, I sometimes call them chop saw churches where, you know, they're trained in how to chop the guns according to, you know, federal regulations and decommission guns. And, you know, I wanted to say, like, I grew up with guns. I grew up hunting. My wife did too. Um, but we've begun to see that this these lives being lost to guns every day in America, um, 110 lives, they matter to God. They're precious. You know, on every corner of our neighborhood, we've got memorials and the kind of memory of the the lives that have been lost. Uh, and 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 it doesn't have to be this way. You know, it, it we're not going to save every life, but we can certainly do better than losing 40,000 lives every year. So in my lifetime, we've lost more lives to guns domestically than all of the casualties in all of America's wars throughout history combined. Uh, and, and that's why we, you know, we say so you can't be pro-life and ignore the lives lost to guns. Um, gun violence is the number one cause of death of children and youth in America. So we we can't save every life, but we can certainly save some. And um, and you know you mentioned um, assault rifles, and um, we're, we're we're one of the only countries that continues to allow you know weapons of war to um, legally be owned on our streets. And and yet these guns, like the AR-15, are designed for one purpose: to kill as many people as possible as quickly as possible. And that's what they keep getting used for, you know, over and over. And in so many mass shootings, the the AR-15 or guns like it are the the you know weapon of choice. So I'll tell you one really incredible story, Andy, is that there was a young family that moved to Philly, and their 
a family member bought them an uh, assault rifle, an AR-15 type rifle, and just mailed it to them. And they got this package and they were like, my gosh, we, we don't want this. And so they Googled how to get rid of a gun and it pulled us up, you know, at Raw Tools Philly. And he called and I said, man, you're like 10 minutes away. I'll be right there. I brought all the equipment and um, we chopped it up and we're making a piece of art for his kid's bedroom. But, you know, I think that's the, the what what we're doing is not just symbolic, but we're actually inviting folks to um, participate in this beautiful vision, right, of of turning from death to life, of participating in changing our country from kind of where we're headed right now into the kind of dream that God wants for it, which I'm convinced, you know, God's dream for America is not for 110 lives to be lost every day to guns. Hmm. Yeah, I've been following your work for over 20 years now. Um, and it's remarkable to see you be at the front lines of so many of these things, advocating and doing the hard work, but also being a, um, a spokesperson for so many things that uh, run contrary to the evangelical movement that the both of us grew up in. Um, and yet I can, as sitting here listening to you in this conversation, I'm struck by the level of joy that you have, despite the fact that you oftentimes are entering into the darkest parts of how religion and humanity intersect um, in, in the most negative ways possible. How, how do you maintain um, and what is your source of so much joy, despite the 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 nature of the work that you do? Well, that's really kind of you. I I guess I, you know, I'm drinking from a cup here that uh, says relentless optimist, um, but I, <laughs> it was given to me, but I, I don't, you know, I, I think that there's a joy that's deeper and more robust than just optimism that, that, uh, you know, I, I like that old hymn that says, you know, it goes, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me, the world didn't give it, and the world can't take it away. So there's this, this kind of, robust resilience and hopeful joy that uh, I, I feel it in my neighborhood, despite all of the challenges here. I see it at the heart of the gospel, um, despite everything that Jesus endured for us, that love gets the last word, that life triumphs over judgment. So that gives us a certain um, confidence and uh we, you know, we don't feel it all the time, but I, I think that, uh, yeah, that's a really nice thing, Andy, to say that. I, I, um, I, I do a lot to try to cultivate and protect my hope and my joy because there's sure a, a whole lot that is looking to take it away. Um, when you first started talking about the cup you're drinking out of, I was like, oh, maybe that's the secret. Whatever's inside the cup um, that <laughs> that gets him through the day. I think, I think one of the things that. Uh, I appreciate most about you and and Brian McLaren, who's a, a dear friend and friend of of the podcast, is y'all too. When I think of people who are often sniped by uh, the evangelical movement, are some of the most humble, Jesus centric people I've ever met before in my life. Uh, Brian being one of the most meek people you'll ever meet. Uh, and if people truly got to know you on a relational level, uh, it might change uh, their their approach. But certainly your good work and you continue of this new book that we're going to turn to now, um, Rethinking Life. This book tackles some of the most challenging and contentious issues among Christians, including gun ownership, racial injustice, abortion and an environment. You wrote, 
I'm still a work in progress, and I don't pretend to have the answers to all the questions that will rise in the pages that follow. But this I know for certain, being in proximity makes difference. Relationships makes issues real and complicated and personal. Walk us through the the motivation behind this book. Yeah, well, I, I will. But first, I wanted to just say that it's funny that you mentioned Brian because he is a he's a really close friend, and um, Katie and I just got to hang out with him. Andy, we were down in Florida, and Brian took us out in kayaks in the mangroves, seeing all the beautiful like uh, birds and. I mean, we had a blast, all the, all the stuff there. And, um, uh, yeah, so we, we are, we are really close friends. And I, I remember, you know, one time when Brian was really getting hit from all sides and he led us at Red Letter Christians on our annual retreat, he led us in a prayer for our enemies or for those that don't like us. And it was just so moving to me to see that, you know, jesus-like love and, and it wasn't just a sentimental like symbolic thing it was so sincere that he's really praying that we could build relationships and listen to each other you know together with people that um, even right now might be hostile towards us and you know dialogue takes two that's the nature of it so we uh, you know it's got to be a two-way stream but i've always felt that from brian and um so it's it's a really kind thing that you say but yeah with this new book so i mean um the the it comes out in february and the the title is uh rethinking life embracing the sacredness of every person i i the last couple of projects i've done the last couple of books i've written have been very particular i wrote beating guns um around the gun violence and and it's not just about the gun violence but the heart issue the theology and kind of idolatry of guns and what that does to us, our fear uh, of the of, of other people that kind of so much is behind our obsession with guns and weapons. Um, and then before that, I wrote Executing Grace, which is around the death penalty um, and, and kind of the idea of what, what is restorative real justice look like. And um, But the reason I wrote both of those is because as much as I grew, grew up, um, using the language pro-life, I began to see how narrowly we defined what it looks like to be pro-life, largely just to one issue of abortion in much of the evangelical world. And I still care about abortion, but I care about other issues too. And I found it, you know, deeply problematic that in America, you can say, you can be pro-guns, pro-military, pro-death penalty, uh, and still say you're pro-life, you know, <laughs> and I, um, so this, this book, you know, I mean, it, it's acknowledging the fact that Christians, um, you know, we, we own guns at a higher rate than the general population. We're the biggest supporters of the death penalty, but rethinking life is painting with a broader brush is saying, well, what does it really look like to create a robust, comprehensive value for life? That's not just about, it's not just issue driven. It's not just about abortion or the death penalty, but it's it's kind of this deep conviction that every person is made in the image of God. And to reclaim that, uh, that that sense of reverence for life and that, the you know, every person is a carrier of God's image in the world. 
So um, that affects how we think on on so many different levels. And uh, I'm really, really pumped about it. It feels like a, a real important project. And um, yeah, thanks for giving me a chance to talk about it. We're going to come back to uh, to violence and abortion and a broader understanding of pro-life here in a second. But a critical foundation for this book is is how you're trying to define death and life. Can can you paint an image for us of how how we might misunderstand these things from a theological perspective? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, as I think even just about sin, um, you know, we often go directly to the Garden of Eden and the, the you know, kind of what we call original sin. But the first time the word sin is used is actually not in the Garden of Eden. It is in Genesis, but it's when it's at the inaugural murder of Cain and Abel. When Cain kills his brother, that's the first use of the word sin in the scripture. And it certainly is the fallout of, you know, from the Garden of Eden. But you start to look at scripture and you see this theme of the violence that is the result of sin. And you see this counter vision that's also weaved throughout scripture of, you know, the prophets, Mike and Isaiah, beating swords into plows, spears into pruning hooks, of the rainbow after the flood, of Jesus, you know, really exposing violence and absorbing it on the cross in order to subvert it with love and forgiveness in an empty tomb. Uh, and, and and yet, like, so there's this really robust ethic of life that we see in the early church. And I, I kind of begin with that, you know, they, they were a force for life and they were so consistent and passionate as they advocated for life and they stood against death and it cost them their lives they were you know killed and martyred for their witness against uh, they were were standing against militarism and war they were standing they spoke about abortion they spoke about the death penalty. They they spoke against the kind of adoration of violence that took the shape of the gladiatorial games. Like every iteration of violence in their culture, there was such a force. And we began to see that ethic of life, that comprehensive, passionate value for life begin to crack. Um, and, and so the second whole section of the book is about the cracks and the foundation looking at Constantine and the Crusades and colonization and even like kind of the eugenics project that paved the way for the Holocaust, like how we had this, this idea that some lives matter a little bit more than others. And some people carry the image of God a little bit more clearly than other people, especially folks with darker skin. And this goes all the way back, you know, to Plato and Aristotle. Uh, so there's a lot of academic books on that, Andy, but I wanted to write one that was real readable and accessible to folks that are wrestling with some of this stuff that some might even have kind of a gut feeling about the death penalty, but haven't necessarily kind of wrapped their hands around the theology that can um, combat the sort of um, uh, death, death penalty theology and the, the, gun violence and war and all that stuff. So um, the whole last end of the book is about how we can um, repair the cracks in the foundation and be more um, consistent advocates and champions for life. I want to go back to that quote I read earlier from the book. You said that we can't love our neighbors if we don't know them. And once we approximate, love requires us to take action, to stand up for life in tangible ways. 
you have obviously invested your life in a form of ministry that's different than most people are accustomed. Um, it's not through the you know uh, expectation of a church service or program, but living life alongside others and community. But when you really stop and think about it, every person listening to this can do that exact same thing, um, but far too many don't. But why do you think that is? Well, we're, we're all, no matter who we are, we're most comfortable around people who are like us, um, you know, who are, who are like us culturally, who look like us, who speak like us, who eat like us. Uh, and so to build relationships across difference is uncomfortable. It's a, it, it can, can feel, you know, unnatural. And yet I think that's the very heart of the gospel. I mean, even Jesus says, um, when they're talking about his family, he's like, who's my family? My family's bigger than biology, you know, and he really pushes back on that. And he's, he, um, he, he says, unless we kind of love beyond our own family, we're, we're not really pursuing the kingdom of God. So Mother Teresa had a great way of saying this. She said, sometimes the circle we put around our family is too small to be born again is really to invite us to love beyond biology. And that's why nationalism is so myopic, you know, and short-sighted is, of course, the people in our own country matter, but our love goes beyond borders. Our compassion extends beyond nationality. And if someone's suffering on the other side of our border wall, it's just as tragic as if it were our own grandmother or daughter. Um, so, but proximity is what makes, because our immediate family, we're most proximate to them. We have the most passion for their, you know, for their vitality and their, their dignity. Um, and, and so the call, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book, there's a whole chapter on proximity is that um, we, we don't just have a compassion problem. A lot of times it's a proximity problem that we're, we're not near to those who are hurting or, who are carrying the the brunt of injustice. So um, it, it's not that we we don't care, it's that we don't know. Um, Mother Teresa used to say that it's very fashionable to talk about the poor, but it's not as fashionable to talk to them. <laughs> you know, if we really care about the poor, then we know their names. Uh, if we really care about immigrants, then uh, we, we've got immigrant families in our lives that we're, you know, uh, entwined with. Um, so, I, you know, I think that that's that's what we have in the church is often a relationship gap. Um, and everything in Jesus's incarnation in his coming to earth is about God leaning in to the suffering of the world and inviting us to follow. And yet everything in our culture is kind of pushing us to move away from the suffering, to move out of neighborhoods where there's high crime or there's people that don't look like us. And I think that's why, you know, the gospel is is kind of inherently countercultural is it's it's inviting us to extend, you know, love and relationship and com uh, compassion um, beyond just the people who are like us. Uh, I was just with one pastor of a mega church and he was talking about how challenging this is. And he said, one of the easiest things to do in the world is to build a church where everybody thinks like you, eats like you and votes like you. But we're trying to th form a community that is as diverse as the kingdom of God. So that's what we're going for. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Christian Healthcare Ministries. 
You want to create a strong Christian family that will uphold one another through thick and thin. What if healthcare worked the same way? With Christian Healthcare Ministries, budget-friendly, compassionate care is within your reach. CHM empowers you to pursue excellence in healthcare without added stress or the need to cut corners. Whether you're looking for a comprehensive maternity program or the flexibility to choose your own providers, CHM has options to fit your family's specific needs. As the nation's first and longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, you can rest assured knowing that you are making a difference in the lives of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Plus, you'll receive all the faith-based support of joining the larger CHM family. Encouragement and spiritual resources created for you and your little ones is just the beginning. Sounds different? It's by design. Join hundreds of thousands of members and discover the biblical solutions to your health care costs. To learn more, visit chministries.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Let's talk about uh, abortion. Uh, this, this has been at the heart of the evangelical politics through the moral majority since the 1970s. Um, we, of course, are all aware of the triumph of their cause culminating in the overturning of Roe v. Wade last summer, uh, leading to many states changing their abortion laws. Um, but you've written on the deeper legacy of abortion within the Christian movement. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Yeah, we can, we probably won't, you know, get to go too deep, but I, I, the, what I, what I was fascinated with as I researched for this, I've got a, you know, whole section of the book, uh, you know, rethinking life where it's on abortion and how abortion began to eclipse these other issues. And it, it, I, I started by saying, um, that abortion matters. It, it it does matter. And yet for many people, it's the only thing that matters. So how did it become that way? And I, I draw on the work of Randall Balmer and so many others that have studied that historically. And it's so interesting as you look at this, that um, abortion has not always been a central issue of evangelical Christians um, or of Christians in general. Um, in fact, for a long time, it was considered more of a Catholic issue. Um, and there is this kind of backdrop of a seamless garment that is more consistent in Catholic teaching. So, you know, a lot of evangelicals, they didn't have a particular stand on the issue. I, I quote um, from a book that, that um, uh, Dr. Um, Dobson wrote the foreword to that talked about how the, the Bible doesn't really talk much about abortion. In fact, it doesn't really mention abortion at all. There's only one verse that you can stretch to really 
think about abortion um, and, and it, it, it only talks about if a woman is being attacked and the child in her womb dies, you know, it's an exodus, this, this kind of verse that we can extend to, for some implications on it. But it's really interesting, you know, how did something that the Bible doesn't mention, that Jesus never mentions, become sort of the litmus test or the, the, the main issue um, beyond some of these others? And when you look closely at history, what's really disturbing is that the evangelical world was going through a lot of changes um, in uh, the, the midst of the civil rights movement and um, schools were, many of our Christian colleges were still trying to stay segregated uh, like Bob Jones and others that, and they were facing the backlash of losing their tax, uh, their, their tax exemption. And so they're trying to find something they could rally around um, and I mean, no one wants to be known as defending segregation. So abortion became one of the kind of um, surprising places that they did begin to rally around. But it wasn't years later that it really became a passion for even folks like uh, Jerry Falwell and the founders of the religious right. Um, and and uh, so as we look at history, um, it's pretty clear that it was the defense of segregation that was really underlying a lot of this, and abortion became um, the the rally point that that eventually became to define the religious right. But what's interesting is this is all about culture wars, right? It's not about the Bible. It's not about our faith, really, as much as it's about power and um, even the rhetoric that we think about when it comes to abortion has been so problematic because you think here's what we know statistically is that the top reason for having an abortion is financial stability. And if we really cared about uh, reducing the number of abortions, then we should be championing uh, better health care and child care and assistance to uh, folks that are struggling financially that are, that are uh, wrestling with how to do that. And yet, on many of those policy issues, the Christians that would call themselves pro-life have been the obstacles to those policies that might actually reduce abortion. So I'm trying to move beyond the culture war and say, you know, I do find the language uh, uh, of that, you know, has been used by many that, you know, abortion should be legal, safe, and rare. And we should all be working to make it rare and rare. I find that language pretty helpful, but that's not necessarily popular on the far left or the far right when it comes to the culture wars. And I think that's part of the problem, man, is I, I really want to see a better conversation on abortion. And we've hosted two town halls, um, Lisa, Sharon Harper, and I uh, at Red Letter Christians uh, around abortion and uh, trying to also center people who have been directly impacted because we're really good at talking about these issues without having the people who have been impacted at the table as we do it. Well, you know, abortion has been the centerpiece of the conservative political movement for decades, um, and the phrase pro-life has been their rallying cry. Um, it is a, a limited agenda on fighting for human rights of others. The, the same group of people who support politicians and legislation that have sought to defund Medicaid, overturn Affordable Care Act, and defund many programs that support poor marginalized communities. Why do you think many, if not most, evangelicals have a, a limited view of what it means to be pro-life? 
Well, this is this is exactly the question that I, I I've been digging at for a few years. You know that that kind of gave fruit to this book. And um, what what I found is that um, as much as we would like to say that we are pro life, we've been better at being pro birth. You know, and and we haven't we've cared about life in the womb, but as soon as the life's out of the womb, we've often um, abandoned that life. And you can see that in some of our public policies, but also, I mean, that around gun violence and I mean, gun violence is the number one cause of death of our children. And so how can we be pro-life and not care about gun violence? If we really care about life, you know, after birth as much as life before birth. So the, the, that, that begins to crack, you know, um, over many centuries. Um, and even, I mean, even this idea that, um, uh, you know, this racial reckoning that we're in the middle of in the United States, um, sadly, the response to uh, the Black Lives Matter movement from many Christians was all lives matter. And the reason I find that, you know, kind of problematic is that um, history has been very particular when it comes to injustice. Uh, I mean, we literally said that black folks are three-fifths human. Uh, as with our founders were writing, all men are created equal. They owned African-Americans as property. You know, in the Dred Scott case, uh, we, we, we said that black folks don't have any rights that white people have to acknowledge. And so to say that black lives matter is to emphasize what hundreds of years of history has undermined and subverted. Uh, so that declaration, you know, we can't say all lives matter broadly until we believe that black lives matter in particular, or, you know, that disabled lives matter, uh, indigenous lives matter. So we need to be able to be particular about it. Um, I remember, you know, a, a, a comedian, I think it was Michael Shea that said, um, he said, if if your wife comes up to you and says, baby, do you love me? You don't say back, honey, I love everybody. <laughs> you know, there is something powerful about the specificity and the particularity of justice and love, uh, especially, I think, as we think of our history um, and and how it has contradicted the, li the, the lives of African-Americans and of others. And, and you know, to, to correct that, we need to really reckon with it. So um, to say Black Lives Matter doesn't mean white lives don't matter. It doesn't mean Black Lives Matter more, but it's just able to uh, to say this this really does matter to God and to be biblical about it. You know, I, I go to the scripture from Corinthians um, uh, prompted by my friend Alexia Salvatierra, and she points out this beautiful image in Corinthians where we talk about the one body with many parts. It ends by saying uh, those parts of the body that have been shamed and dishonored are given special honor. And she calls that God's affirmative action, right? That God is affirming what we have not done a good job at, at affirming, that, that we are given special honor to the people who have been dishonored. So I think that's that's a part of the gospel when we see, you know, that we are lifting up those who have been crushed and we're bringing down uh, those who have been lifted up. I mean, that's, you know, actually in 
the the gospel of uh, and and so it's part of what we're doing in the world is affirming those lives that have been crushed. One of the hidden lives um, in America is those that are incarcerated, and and you've really been at the front lines of advocating specifically for um, ending of, of the death penalty. It's a fascinating quote from the book you wrote, as, as we ponder the mystery of what Jesus did on the cross, I want to keep us from getting too heady. The cross should do something, not just in our heads, but also our hearts. What Jesus did on the cross is not just a theological puzzle to be figured out or a riddle to be solved, but something that should reorient our lives, especially when it comes to how we think about violence. Um, how might Christians in America um, begin to think differently about the value of life and death as it comes to this specific group that most of the time is hidden away in our communities, um, locked away, um, oftentimes um, for for minor crimes, but also, you know, uh, being subjugated to death penalties, uh, maybe something that might be theologically contradictory to the gospel. It's so important because the 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 death penalty, I mean, it is a specific issue, but it also surfaces some of these cracks in our theology and in our ethic and value for life. Um, just to, and to be clear, I mean, I say this in the book. I I spent a lot of my life uh, as a supporter of the death penalty. You know, I know the verses that I used to defend the death penalty really well. Um, and, and so I, I have, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, respect as I try to engage people who are rethinking some of these things, but I mean, it is haunting that 90% of executions are happening in the Bible belt, um, wherever Christians are in leadership at the state level as governors and led in senators, that's where the death penalty continues to survive. So the death penalty has survived not in spite of Christians, but because of us. And the Bible Belt is the death belt in America. I mean, that it's it, it's such a contradiction, you know, to you would think that those of us who worship an executed and risen Savior who said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, that that we would have the biggest suspicions of the death penalty you know that we we, 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 we would have some fuel uh some fire in our bones to oppose it um and yet that's that's not been the case uh uh so um but this is where proximity makes a difference andy is what happened for me is i started to get to know folks on death row and um i spent i've spent a lot of time with folks at unit two on tennessee's death row my mom's been my wife's been and it makes a difference when you know people. I know people who are wrongfully convicted, who I know people now who have been exonerated. They're free because they've proven that they were innocent of the crimes they were convicted of. I mean, one of them, my, my close friend, Derek Jameson, um, was just hours from his execution. Um, and they forced the prosecution to release all the evidence that proved his innocence. And yet he spent 20 years on death row, had multiple execution dates, saw many of his friends executed and talked so powerfully and what it did to him. Um, you know, I can't even imagine what that's like to be sentenced to death for something you didn't do. But I also know folks that are guilty. And I, I've seen what Jesus has done in their life over the years. Um, 
And as my friend Brian Stevenson says, we're all more than the worst thing that we've ever done. And at the heart of the death penalty, you know, is this question, is anybody beyond redemption? And that's why I think this is an important issue for us to wrestle with, because it, 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 it this is not just a political issue. It really is a deeply spiritual and theological issue. Um, so, yeah, and, I, you know, I have on my desk here a little note from a friend of mine who spent 30 years, um, most of them on death row, and he now is no longer there. And he, he wrote me this note telling me what it feels like to walk on grass barefoot for the first time in 30 years. So that, I mean, that, that's, that, you know, when you think about what does real justice look like, I think it, lo it looks really different from our system that is so punitive and so, so vengeful, right? Like different from the biblical ideas that we see of restorative justice that is meant to heal the wounds of violence and hatred in the world. And so the invitation, you know, I, I give is in, in rethinking life is for us to imagine what is life, what does life giving justice look like? And I think it looks very different from the death penalty and the systems that we call criminal justice today. You take away the facade of Christianity being this personal egocentric relationship religion and really look at the gospels um let alone the the new testament epistles you see that jesus and his followers were fighting for so much more than personal salvation in a spiritual and eternal sense um jesus is not the clean-cut guy with perfectly ironed white robes but a political insurrectionist that disrupted the status quo for rome the puppet rulers in israel and, and the religious institutions why is that Jesus more important to follow? I, th I think it's so hard for us to hold together these, these things that um, are kind of like blades of scissors, right? They like faith and works, as scripture says, or personal salvation and social transformation, like the, the personal and the social, we, we, we often like land on one and not the other. And I think what happens, Andy, is a lot of what history does is try to overcorrect um, where we've been negligent. So it's kind of like when you run your car off the right side of the road, you yank the wheel and you run off the left side of the road, you know, so we never kind of get this balance or integration. Um, so there's folks that, that, say they love Jesus, but they don't seem to care about justice. And there's other folks that are all about justice, but they've kind of forgotten Jesus. And, you know, we're trying to hold those together. And there's a lot of folks that inspire me as I do that. You know, I I talk about a lot of them in my, in, in this book and folks like Martin Luther King and, um, and, and Desmond Tutu and uh, Oscar Romero, Dorothy Day, so many folks that they they did have this sense that the gospel is personal, but it is also social. And and so I, I you know I think if we think that this is only about personal salvation, we're missing a whole part of the gospel. Uh, if we think this is just about um, our efforts to to transform the world, we're also missing a part uh, of the gospel. Uh, so we're trying to you know keep those integrated. But boy, I mean you can't miss the fact that. 
in the in the gospel of Luke, you know, that this whole story begins with this pronouncement, you know, Mary's Mary's song that God's casting the mighty from their thrones and raising the lowly. God's filling the hungry with things and sending the rich away empty. Uh, you know, I mean, that's not Karl Marx. That's the gospel of Luke. <laughs> you know, that's Mary. Uh, and it is a radical call to reorient ourselves so that the first are last and the last are first. I mean, it flips the entire world upside down. That's what the gospel does. And that that's what Jesus does. I mean, literally, I think especially, I don't know when this will come out, Andy, but you know, we're in Advent, we're thinking about Christmas and the whole story is about Jesus being born as a brown skin. Palestinian, Jewish, refugee, homeless baby. <laughs> I mean, the most profound act of divine solidarity. God with us in our marginality and in our pain, even to the point of the cross of enduring execution and humiliation and exposing all of the systems of death uh, in order to subvert them. So um, it is, it does blow the mind how we're able to dodge all of that. <laughs> you know, when Jesus isn't used as a figurehead to justify uh, European and American capitalism and imperialism, the atrocities of things done in the past and present and his name come to light, uh, it becomes increasingly uncomfortable to reexamine our history as as a Christian movement and to see how our hands have been involved in tyranny and subjugation and annihilation and systemic racism. In turn, it gives every reason for someone who has deconstructed that faith to want to leave the faith altogether. Um, as a person who's gone through that journey, what wisdom can you impart for those struggling through it? Mm. It's such an important question. And um, I think as we look at history uh, that there are competing narratives throughout every part of Christian history and American history and world history are, is that people of faith. And, and I, I think, you know, Christianity in particular um, have been a part of the problem and a part of the solution often, even at the same times that these narratives have been in collision with each other. Uh, when we think of slavery and colonization, and I try to like paint that picture in rethinking life of the church at its best and at its worst, of these competing narratives of life and death giving theology that are happening. Um, so, I mean, I think it's true of every faith that we have people who distort our faith to cover up their own hatred and violence. Um but certainly Christianity has been an exemplary model of that as we think of the way that the papal bulls uh, and uh, the, the Catholic Church, uh, you know, at the time was um, baptizing colonization um, and Columbus and what we did. So, I, you know, talk about that, um, uh, the, the anti-Semitism that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years to the earliest parts of the church that discriminated against Jews who they saw as these people who abandoned, who 
did you know they they were god haters they they crucified jesus and that begins to become a really toxic contaminant of our theology and i you know uh, you know, point that out in martin luther's teaching and thomas aquinas like some of the this this anti-jewish theology and the eugenics project that paved the way for hitler so you i think we can be honest about history and that that christianity at at, at the same time it has been complicit or even the catalyst for hatred and death uh, has also been a part of the resistance and part of what happens is that white colonizing christianity also colonizes the narrative and the reputation of of christianity even today some of the loudest voices representing Christ christianity in the public sphere are not always the most beautiful or the most Christ-like, uh, loving, faithful voices. And so the way that, as Reverend Barber, you know, down there in North Carolina says, the way that you change the narrative is by changing the narrators and centering those voices that have maybe been historically marginalized, but amplifying the voices of leaders of color and other marginalized folks in the church that are preaching the true, you know, beautiful, robust, good news that's liberation and good news to the poor. Um, so um, I, I think there's a lot of deconstruction and there's a lot of people leaving parts of Christianity that should be left behind. But sometimes the challenge is where do we go from here? And I think to go nowhere continues to allow some of the most to toxic versions of Christianity to colonize the landscape of Christianity, because there's always been something deeper in the historic black church and the, the charismatic uh, uh, liberation theology of Latin America. There's, there's all these other beautiful versions of Christianity that are out there. And uh, so, you know, it's kind of like in Philly, we're, we're turning abandoned houses into homes. And some of these abandoned houses, they're so, uh, in, they're in such rough shape, they just need to be torn down. The foundations aren't aren't set, you know, they're, they're not firm. But there's other houses that look really bad that just need a little bit of, it's all aesthetic, you know, that they got strong strength. I think the church is kind of like that. Like some of these denominations, um, I, I won't, I won't name them, Andy, but, you know, some of them were, <laughs> their foundation was on the wrong side of history, right? These denominations started because they were defending racism and slavery and segregation. They need to be torn down. But there's other, you know, some of these houses that we, we need to, like, um, bring them back to life. Uh, and, and we dust off some of our liturgy and our history because it's still there. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's there's a place for deconstruction and there's a place for reconstruction. Um, and, you know, some folks have said, you, you, if you go to a bad concert, you don't give up all music. Uh, I think that, that, you know, that metaphor falls short in some ways because a bad concert doesn't leave you with wounds and trauma like many people's church experiences and abuse does. But we are longing for love and to be loved and we've we are communal beings so we've got to keep i think rethinking what church looks like what community looks like for us and that'll be saying no to some things that have not been life-giving but hopefully hopefully practicing a better version of christianity you know just as gandhi said we should be the change that we want to see in the world 
I think there's, there are those of us that also need to be the change that we want to see in the Christian church. Well, certainly one aspect that you've modeled uh, is how deconstruction can turn into action and into fighting for justice. Your challenge at the end of the book, not to give it away, is for us to see ourselves as midwives of a new world waiting to be born. I wonder if you'll take us deeper there in closing. Yeah, some of this is also, um, I begin this last chapter by pointing out that that some of this is about um, a toxic masculinity and an aggression um, that we still see in our country and not to paint things totally in, you know, gender binaries or something like that. But I, I, I think that when we look at history, I, I list all of the the casualties of like um, the, the things like the Holocaust and the wars. And it's often, you know, men in power that have been carrying out these terribly um, devastating, uh, deadly atrocities. And often women that have been a conscience, um, uh, even in, you know, we think more recently in terms of um, Donald Trump, a lot of folks have been pointing out that you know, 80% of white evangelicals supported Trump. But what we often miss is that uh, 80% of African-American women have been the resistance. They've been the prophetic conscience in our country. And many of them, many of them deeply compelled by their faith. And so this invitation to be midwives is uh, uh, inspired by the, the verse in, the, in the, the New Testament, you know, that talks about how all of creation is groaning. Um, and it, it feels like you can feel that groaning even in our streets, you know, as people are marching and saying, you know, we can't breathe. There's this groaning of creation itself. Uh, but that scripture is interesting in Romans because it says it's a groaning that's like the, the pains of childbirth. It's sort of an invitation to think we're we're giving birth to something new. And in the words of the great, you know, lawyer and activist Valerie Carr, uh, she says, the the darkness that we're living in right now, maybe it's not the darkness of the tomb, but it's the darkness of the womb. That this isn't the death of America, but maybe it's America's just being born. That the, the pain that we see in our world is labor pains. And the invitation that we have is to give birth to a new world. So that, you know, is the invitation that um, I kind of give at the end of the book. What's your hope for your readers? Just my hope is that the next generation um, will be known as champions for life without exception. You know, that, that Christians will not be on pro-life on just one issue and the obstacles to life on another, but we would have this reverence and this consistency that we care uh, about people and, and that any time a life is crushed, we are crushing God's image in the world. Uh, that That's my hope. Our guest is Shane Claiborne. The book is Rethinking Life. You can stay connected with Shane by visiting shaneclaiborne.com. Shane, it's always an honor to speak with you. Thank you for reminding us that a new world is waiting to be born and we get to be the midwives.
Thank you, brother. Let's do it again soon. Blessings to everybody. Thanks for listening. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.